along the way, we basically were thinking about what the next fundraising step would be. And you could wait until the end at Capital Factory Demo Day, but we were trying to put our feelers out there beforehand. We actually had another local Austin company talk to us and say, hey, we want to acquire you, which I thought was the first time I heard anyone ever say that. You're like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> of course, it's quite the, flattering. Yeah, quite flattering. Of course, the reality is we basically had nothing to sell. We had a sort of working website. And more importantly, it was really going to be an aqua hire. They weren't going to really give us any money. It was just go work for them. But in getting advice about how to handle, that's what ultimately led us to get an introduction to Silverton because they were like, oh, interesting. What, do you, what is it you guys are doing? And so we met with Silverton and they ended up coming in and doing our seed round hmm. actually prior to demo day. I announced it at Capital Factory, which was fun. Cool. So you yeah. announced the round with Silverton at the Capital Factory demo day. Yep. And said, yep, exactly. And then when I, at that demo day, Mike Maples Jr. was the keynote speaker. Yep. And as I'm walking back to my seat after we did our pitch, Mike pulls me aside and he's like, hey, is there any more room left in this round? I'd love to invest. And I was like, no, but for you, we could probably arrange that. Yeah, you knew who he was. <laughs> yeah. And he was early investor in Lyft and, yeah. and Twitter, maybe. Yeah, a bunch Twitter, of big Twitter. Sil- yeah, sure. Twitter yeah. yeah. So he ended up joining the seed round too. So it was Silverton and Floodgate. Sparefoot had a nice trajectory. These were first time founders that had moved here, I think, from California. And so there was a lot of goodwill in both directions from. Sparefoot to Capital Factory and Capital Factory back to Sparefoot. It was a success. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on this show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. For this episode of Austinpreneur, we speak with Chuck Gordon, who is the CEO and founder of Storable. Storable, formerly known as Sparefoot, was one of the first five companies to join Capital Factory. Since then, they raised about $50 million in VC funding, were acquired twice by private equity firms, and along the way, Chuck has remained the CEO, and Storable has become the top tech brand in self-storage. And so, we actually moved here the same year in 2009, and must met Josh Baer and Capital Factory crew about that time. What brought you to Austin? Capital Factory. So it was specifically for Capital Factory? Specifically for Capital Factory, yeah. But you were going to UCLA, correct? Is that where you originally came up with the idea? Yes. So the original idea came when I was studying at UCLA, and I was going to be going abroad for my junior year to Singapore, and I needed a place to store all my stuff while I was gone because my parents lived in D.C. So I went and looked for self-storage and basically found that it was going to cost over $1,000 for the time I was gone. And my dad refused to pay for that because he said, I'm not paying a grand to store your crap that's worth 100 bucks." And <laughs> I said, that is fair enough. So I had to figure out another solution and ended up putting all of my stuff in my now co-founder Mario's attic in Bakersfield and had the idea that you could rent out the space on your personal property as storage instead of a storage facility. So 
that was the idea spark, if you will. Did you originally connect with Mario? Did he known him previously? So Mario and I were randomly assigned freshman year suite mates and became best friends. And yeah, then one thing he, led to another co-founders. He had a garage and you didn't. Exactly. So it started almost as kind of like Airbnb for garages. That's right. Yeah, it's actually funny. It's, we started at the same month, same year as Airbnb. So sometimes we joke that we picked the wrong kind of space, but sorry, it worked out and anyway. Were there other similar companies you had seen that this was really just solving our problem and why aren't we renting out the space in garages? I had read a lot about peer-to-peer companies in general back then. Specifically then, the hot thing was peer-to-peer lending and some other applications like that, marketplaces. But yeah, that was the, I hadn't actually seen anything like what we were doing. It was just taking the peer-to-peer concept and applying it to a problem that yeah. I personally experienced. Yeah. The act of storing it was when I, when the idea came about, right? So we're storing it, and then I think I remember, I can barely remember this, but I think we were driving back to his house for Thanksgiving, and we started talking about the idea. I threw it out there, and we got so excited that we missed the exit on the freeway. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, we were juniors in college. So that was the idea, and then, of course, we had no idea what to do with it from there. We had this idea, but... We're like, okay, sounds cool. What do we do? Started writing down some thoughts. And then when I went to Singapore, I took, I had the opportunity to take some entrepreneurship classes. And that's where I really learned about the whole startup world and raising money and writing a business plan, which of course now I wouldn't recommend you do, but at the time. (laughs) And so that's really where I started putting it all together, creating a business plan. Mario and I worked together on that while I was over there and he was back at UCLA. And then when I came back, we went to family and friends with this business plan and said, hey, do you want to invest in this idea where people can rent out their garage, backyard, closet, driveway, whatever it might be to someone who needs storage, but didn't want to go to a regular storage facility because they were too expensive. So we coerced our grandparents and their friends and some other family members to invest a little bit of money, hired a developer and launched the site during our senior year. And we were, it, basically it didn't work for a lot of reasons, but that was right, that was 2008 going into 2009, so the depths of the recession. And we were able to leverage our story to get some pretty good press coverage for how people were riding out the recession by renting out their unused space, that kind of thing. So we got some good TV coverage that ended up getting syndicated to local channels around the country. And what happened was all these mom and pop storage facilities saw us on these basically TV clips and started signing up for the site because they were actually desperate to find new customers because it was a recession and they were struggling too. They had hundreds of garages. Exactly. Yeah. They had infinite space they needed to fill. So that was curious because we're sitting there thinking, why are they, this thing is meant to replace them. Why are they signing up for it? And what we realized is that they really needed help finding new customers. And so right around the time that we were figuring out that, hey, maybe the real opportunity here is to actually focus on helping the self-storage owners do better, find more tenants, fill up their facilities. That was right around the time we were graduating, getting low on our little bit of money that we'd raised and thought that an incubator program would be a great next step. So we applied to two in D.C., which I can't even remember which ones they were, 
got rejected from both, but got some feedback each time. And then randomly, we had another roommate whose older brother, they were from Austin. His older brother was connected to one of the Capital Factory mentors and said, hey, I heard about this new thing they're starting in Austin called Capital Factory. It's an incubator program. You guys should check it out. Chuck and Mario moved to Austin after being one of the first companies selected to join Capital Factory. While the structure of our program back then was different, the value proposition was the same. We helped Storable find mentors and customers, as well as connecting them to their first institutional investors. After a few months in the program, Storable announced a round of funding led by Silverton Partners on stage at Capital Factory. So I had only been to Austin one time. Mario had never even been to Texas. And we said, hey, why not? Let's apply. So we applied, and then we got into the second round of interviews. This is the first time Capital Factory this ever had a class. The, the first cohort. The first you time You are ever. company number one at Capital Factory. Yes, or one of five, but yeah. So we did the interview, and uh, one funny story from that is Josh asked us to fly to Austin to meet with them in person, and we said, we'd love to, but we can't afford that. Sorry, we're going to do video. <laughs> and they ended up accepting us into the first class, and so we put all of our respective belongings in our cars and drove out to Austin, and the plan was to stay here for 10 weeks for the Capital Factory program and then see what happened from there. It was interesting. They were figuring it out at the same time as we were. There was a small office space that had five rooms in it, and each company got one of the rooms, and there was like a shared hallway. And me and Mario and the couple people working on Sparefoot at the time with us were in that room. And we did a once a week meeting where there would be some presenter, usually one of the mentors. For example, I remember Kip McClanahan presenting about what it means to be a VC and how their business model works and what do they look for in companies and what are the different things you need to be thinking about and lots of other great content like that. And then the whole thing led up to ultimately the demo day, the pitch day at the end where we'd present in front of a couple hundred potential investors or interested parties and basically that was the program. And then along the way you had access to all the mentors to yeah. talk about your business and different ways that could help you grow and expand or think about how to solve problems or whatever you wanted to ask them, you could. And so we really took advantage of that. I think that was something that we really enjoyed from the program was access to these people who we never would have had access to if we weren't in the Capital Factory. Mm -hmm. So we took full advantage. We met with every single mentor, spent some time, figured out the ones who had experiences that were most relevant to ours or to what we were trying to do. And yes, I have stayed in touch with many of them over the years. Some of them actually joined our board of directors once we raised our first round of institutional financing. And that was Kip. That was Kip, yeah, and John Price. Yep. And uh, yeah, I literally saw the two of them together last weekend, 10 years later, still friends. But in getting advice, that's what ultimately led us to get an introduction to Silverton because they were like, oh, interesting. What, do you, what is it you guys are doing? And so we met with Silverton, and they ended up coming in and doing our seed round hmm. actually prior to Demo Day. I announced it at Demo Day, which was fun. Cool. So you yeah. announced the round with Silverton at the Demo Day, yep. and were able to get ahead of the game there. So you used the early acquisition opportunity, and that happened to get the attention of Silverton, and they invested. Yep, exactly. And then when I at that Demo Day, Mike Maples Jr. was the keynote speaker. Yep. And... As I'm walking back to my seat after we did our pitch, Mike pulls me aside and he's like, hey, 
is there any more room left in this round? I'd love to invest. And I was like, no, but for you, we could probably arrange that. You knew who he was? <laughs> yeah. And he was early investor in, I think, Lyft and, yeah. and Twitter, maybe. Yep, a bunch Twitter, of big Twitter. Sil- for yeah, sure. Twitter yeah. yeah, so he ended up joining the seed round, too. So it was Silverton and Floodgate. On the path to growth, Storable has evolved from Airbnb for garages to building tech tools for self-storage operators, and now they are expanding into market segments such as providing technology to boat marinas. Really, the first 10 years of Sparefoot was focused on building the leading marketplace for self-storage. In very simple terms, we went and signed up as many storage facilities across the U.S. as we possibly could to list all their vacant unit inventory on our site. And then we tried to go do every kind of online marketing we could dream of to bring consumers in who needed to find a storage unit and wanted to comparison shop, find the best deal, book it online. And we built all the technology to integrate with the different systems of record that the storage facilities were using to manage their inventory. And we launched lots of marketing partnerships with different websites that had traffic of people who were moving and needed storage. And raised a couple more rounds of venture capital along the way from some bigger firms, including Insight Partners, and really were quite successful in doing that and built a nice size company. And, you know, we got up to 13 or 14,000 storage facilities using the site. We had a couple hundred employees and we're doing really well. But along that journey, we got to know our customers really well too. And we realized that they were using in some cases, seven or eight different vendors to run their business. They've got us for online marketing, someone else doing their website, someone else for their system of record inventory management software, someone else processing their payments, someone else doing their tenant insurance, someone else with their access control, and the list literally goes on and on. And we thought, hey, if there was a way to bring all of this together into one consolidated platform for our customers, it could dramatically simplify their daily operations and also present a pretty compelling business opportunity for us. So we were thinking about, okay, how would we go do that? And we came to the conclusion that the only way to do it was to first own the system of record software because that's a hub of the operation of the storage owner. And so I then spent many years building a partnership with and a relationship with the founder who owned the leading system of record software in our industry is called SiteLink. And eventually we were able to put together a deal for us to acquire them in 2018. And so at that time, we needed to bring in a new financial partner to finance that deal and then also provide a exit for our VCs, which in some cases had been in for almost 10 years at that point. And so we ended up partnering with a group out of Boston called Cove Hill Partners, private equity firm. And they bought the majority of the combined company. And uh, so we were able to, our old investors were able to get out, a great outcome for them. And then we were able to roll into this new entity, which we ultimately decided to call Storable. So we rebranded the whole entity, the Sparefoot SiteLink combo, as Storable. And that was really meant to be the foundation upon which we would go build this all-in-one technology company for the storage industry. You've been CEO of the company the whole time? I have. Still in it. You must be doing a pretty good job. I guess so. Trying. (laughs) A lot of this you can't learn from, it's not just go read a bunch of books. 
It's not go read these 12 books and you'll be ready for the complexities. A lot of these things, you don't, you just have to live through it. So part of this is developing tools and recruiting a team and having a leadership style that gets you through. You don't have to be an expert in all of the functions. Some of the CEOs think when I give that analogy that they have to go learn all of the functions. As the functions get more complete, I gotta be even more of an expert in marketing and sales and customer success. No, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. You have to develop on the leadership realm so that you can handle the complexity with an executive team that is making everything work. Chuck's obviously done that, but that's the way to think about it, and it's very rare, very rare. You just It's such a different challenge at every stage, and it takes a different set of tools, different networks. How does an entrepreneur evolve with the company as you grow so fast like Storable has? That's a great question. And what I would say is that you have to really want to. That's like first and foremost. Yeah. And you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable and being okay knowing that you don't know everything and that you have a lot to learn and that you just need to surround yourself with people who have been there, done that, and a lot of mentors who can give you advice on how to handle these new situations that you're facing. Yeah. So when we first raised institutional money, that was the first time when it was clear that I could be fired because now someone else has the power to do that which is a weird feeling when it's your own company. But because we did that so early and there was always this expectation of, hey, we're, yeah, we're running the company. It's our company, but we are accountable to board of directors and a set of investors who've trusted us with their money and we need to prove ourselves and we need to learn and be better and figure out how to lead this company to success. That's just the mantra we've taken through each chapter. So when we transition to private equity ownership, I spent a lot of time talking to CEOs of private equity-backed companies, talking to our private equity partners and learning from them, getting advice, and I think just having the mindset of, hey, I need to prove myself. I don't, I shouldn't expect anything. They could easily go hire a CEO who's done this a bunch of times, who's track record, but I want, it, I want this opportunity, so let me prove it. And I'd never expect it. You know what I mean? I always feel like I need to earn it. Nothing's given. Nothing's given. So you did the deal with Cove Hill in yep. 2018. Yep. And then you did another deal in 2021. What happened there? We decided it would be the right time to explore bringing in a larger, more global private equity firm to, to work with us. So we went out, we did a banker-led process, and ultimately ended up partnering with EQT, who's based in Sweden, but has a office here in New York. And so we've been spending the last two years, that deal closed April 2021. And so now EQT is our majority owner. And we've been spending the last two years working with them to expand the business along all the lines I was describing earlier. And really, in this chapter, it's all about expanding into new verticals. How did the pandemic impact the self-storage? It was interesting. At the beginning of the pandemic, we were unsure of what was going to happen, just like everyone else. And so we went into full lockdown mode. We never had to do any layoffs or anything, which is good. But we stopped all spending, stopped all hiring, and just watched the trends. We scenario modeled a situation where the spare foot part of our business went to zero. So we're like, what if all storage facilities are forced to close? There's no movements happening. Then that business would go to zero. Fortunately, storage ended up being designated as a 
essential business, and so they were open. And then, all of a sudden, every storage facility in the country needed technology to operate contactless, and guess who was the only people who could provide that? Storable. Storable. So that ended up being really good. That started to get exciting. Yep. How far into the pandemic was that? Pretty early. So our customers really needed our tools to be contactless, do online rentals, let their customers pay online, all those things that had been evolving and, of course, growing in popularity in the industry over time. But it was overnight. There was no question about anyone needing to be digital anymore. They had to be. Almost every startup who takes off has a time where they think they might crash land. At the end of our conversation, Chuck opened up about some of the biggest challenges they faced at Storable and how he navigated them with his team. In the startup days, the early days, the biggest challenge was running out of money. Yeah, yeah, that's a hard that's one. That's always dicey. Over the last 14 years, we've done layoffs four times. That's terrible. I hate doing layoffs. Yeah. You have to do it sometimes, and it's part of life running a business, but it's not fun. So those are always really tough times. I think that the process of trying to sell your company is also really hard. It's also fun and exciting and rewarding, but there's constant challenges every day, right? Mm -hmm. Everything, I feel like, unless every something should be hard all the time or you're not pushing yourself enough. It all leads back to not running out of money, though. Right. Yeah. Can't run out of money. But what do you do to avoid running out of money? You try to plan very carefully. Yeah. You do what, annual planning? And then, yeah. Kinda... And then, of course, like checking in on it every week. Yeah, every week. Yep. When did you get your first CFO that started running, like, full budgeting forecast? So we were probably a little late to the game on having a CFO, to be honest with you. That's a lesson learned. We probably, I can't remember what year we hired our first CFO, but I want to say it was 2014 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And But prior to that, we always had someone in finance on the team, and we always had one of our early guys, John Durrett, was always helping out, putting the CFO hat on, and really being very involved in modeling and forecasting and budgeting and thinking about cash planning and all that stuff. So we, mm -hmm. we were always thinking about that, even if we didn't have CFO. And what led to you having to execute a layoff? There's been four times, so I could give you four different stories, but <laughs> I'll start with the <laughs> toughest one, which is the first one. Yes. So that was basically what happened was in 2015, we had, in every year prior to that, grown 100% year over year, assumed we would continue to do the same. And the dynamic that was going on in the industry at the time was there had been basically no new construction of storage facilities since the Great Recession. And so occupancy was just going up and up and up. And we just totally didn't anticipate the fact that people were going to be really full and just not need spare foot as much. And so we were growing at 30% instead of 100%, but we were spending like we were going to grow 100%. So that is the simple math about what happened. So kind we ran, had to, ran out of market to sell into and had to. Yeah, or just it was we were growing slower than we thought we were going to, so we had to adjust our right. cost expectations and plans to accommodate. And any advice for entrepreneurs who are facing that situation and they have to go execute a layoff and for, for just act fast, do it. Rip the Band-Aid. Yeah, act fast, rip the Band-Aid, but also be really empathetic to everyone involved, to the people who you're having to say goodbye, to the people who are staying. Really spend the time 
planning out how to do it the right way. Talk to people. I talked to a bunch of people before we did it. How do we do? How do we make sure we do this the right way? Really think through all of your communications to all the parties and get a lot of advice. Don't treat it like, meh, whatever. It's not meh, whatever. If you do it well, then people will be with you getting through it and will want to see the other side. But if you just treat people like they don't matter, then you're going to lose. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out CapitalFactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at CapitalFactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible. And special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode.